The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter Four, The Hearing. But why not? asked Susan, half whispering and with a little whine in her voice. She carefully pulled the low branches around her as she walked. "'Because Margaret and Dustin are going to be at the town farm all morning,' Martin whispered back. He stepped carefully through the brush so as to make as little noise as possible. "'And I've got to be up at town hall for the hearing. That just leaves you, Judy, Carlos, Anna, and Lucas here to cover the house.' Martin knelt down between two tall beech trees to lift up a flower-pot base. There was nothing under it. Good, Martin thought. At least he's still getting this flatbread. Here, hold this. He handed Susan his carbine. She took it and slung it over her forearm with a casual comfort that she would never have imagined a month ago. Martin turned away to smile, lest his smile make her feel self-conscious. He pulled out a fresh disc of flatbread and placed it under the flowerpot base. It was bad enough that we're not doing deep patrols while we're short-handed, Martin whispered. He took back the carbine. Being even more short-handed is no help. I know all that, she whispered back as they resumed walking quietly through the brush. Judy and the Perezes can watch the house. It's only for a few hours. I just think it's more important. What's so important? Susan didn't answer. This piqued Martin's curiosity and pushed out all his other many thoughts. He stopped to face her. Come on, he coaxed. Why is it so important? Susan hesitated, avoiding eye contact. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's not so important. She looked at the ground and fidgeted. It's just that you seem really stressed since you got back from town hall yesterday. Oh, sure, you always put on your just-get-things-done face, but I can tell. This hearing thing is really eating at you inside. I just think it's important that you have somebody there, so you're not going through it alone. She looked up with huge eyes. Martin quickly turned away and started walking again. Well, thanks, but I don't even know if other people are allowed into these hearings. Well, then I'll wait outside. You're not helping, Martin grumbled. I'm not trying to help you talk me out of it. I'm trying to be there. Martin grumbled and walked on. He stopped at the edge of the creek bed to wrap his walking stick on a tree to make the day's recognition sign. He waited. Eventually, the answer came. Carlo stood smiling in front of the garage. Day, Mr. Martin. Back already? That is good. It will be time for you to go soon. I think it is a fine idea that Miss Susan go to the hearing, too. Martin turned to face Susan. She had a caught-in-the-cookie-jar expression. I, I was just thinking out loud, I guess, and... There will still be four of us to watch the house, Mr. Martin. No need to worry. Lucas has very sharp ears. Anna will keep the fires burning and be making another pot of corn, and I am good with the pistol. I will keep a sharp eye, too. I will not work on the frame until you come back. No distractions. Mrs. Judy, she is good on watch, too. He smiled and nodded at Judy as she came around the corner to check out the voices. 
Carlo stepped closer and lowered his voice. It is not good to be alone when facing one of them, one of the Azules. They have the devil in them. Martin heaved a heavy sigh. He had no mental energy to resist a group effort. Oh, fine, he said in cranky resignation. But they probably won't let you in anyway. A twitch of a smile lightened Susan's worried expression for a moment. Judy, as the remaining family member in the house, you are in charge until I come back, Martin said. Judy's eyes widened, as if she was told that she'd be up next to test a new parachute. Uh, what? You are the officer on deck around here until I or Dustin or Margaret get back, understand? Martin waited for a yes or a nod, but Judy just stared at him. That means no going up on the ridge to listen to the radio. That'll have to wait. Just stay around the house and keep an eye on things. Uh, but what, what if something happens? Judy protested. You'll know what to do. Remember our drills. If someone comes down the road, remember how we practiced. You'll do fine. Carlos, I'm going to leave this with you until I get back. Martin handed Carlos the carbine. I'd rather you guys had some bite while I'm gone, if you need it. They might not want such things in their courtroom anyhow. Martin trudged up Old Stockman Road, lost in his thoughts. Why had he agreed to be a gang member's lawyer? He tried to replay yesterday's events again and see where he went wrong. Berg and Landers had compelling reasons yesterday. He wished he had asked for time to think about it. Why didn't he ask for time to think about it? Would he have said no? Well, could he have said no? He recalled with a smile how Margaret took the news that he had agreed to act as defense counsel. Why didn't you just say no? she asked, savoring the irony. It's as simple as that. Her big grin was a rare sign of playfulness that he hadn't seen in weeks. In stark contrast, all was dark and serious at breakfast. Margaret faced a difficult meeting ahead with the folks at the town farm. People accustomed to plenty and food as entertainment were not going to like the news. Meals of mostly carbs, rice or bread, with beans and milk as their primary protein, were not going to be very popular. Martin serving as defense counsel for a gang member was not going to make him popular either. He could hear Susan's footsteps crunching in the sand and rocks beside him. He didn't want to look at her. She was noticeably silent. She usually tried to fill silences with light conversation. Now she seemed to be letting him have his thoughts in peace. He appreciated that. Would acting as Trevor's defender damage his place in the community? There were many who wanted to drag Trevor out and shoot him for the murders. Would they look upon him as a traitor and an outsider for this? How would Charles handle the news that Martin was defending one of the gang that killed his relatives? Working on the gasifier was a good distraction therapy for Charles, taking his mind off the death of his aunt and uncle. Would Martin as defender ruin that therapy? The prospect of being part of Tyler and Charles as trucking entrepreneurs was intriguing, even if tenuous. Martin didn't want to see that particular prospect for incoming food be shut off because he defended Trevor. Martin could see from their shadows before them that Susan was glancing over at him periodically. What? he said, without looking up. Oh, nothing, she said. 
You're just walking really slowly. Hmm, you're right. Guess part of me doesn't want to get there. Martin picked up his pace. He couldn't control how other people saw his actions. He was certainly no bleeding-heart softy who imagined that every inner-city hoodlum was a lost puppy in need of love. Trevor represented much of what had been going wrong in America for decades. The decline of the family, the dark reality of social Darwinism, the rebellion from morality, the toxin of generations of entitlement thinking. Trevor was symbolic of them, the poster child for all that was wrong with the world before the power crisis, and which had invaded their peaceful town. Yet, Landers had a point. As odious as it was to defend the poster child, the people needed to see that things can still be handled according to law, not by the emotions of the mob. The cooperation that the people of Cheshire had been slowly building could vanish quickly if people thought it was every man for himself. Martin knew he didn't have enough ammo to fend off a whole town. He didn't have enough food to survive the winter on his own. Carrying the fate of a community was a very heavy burden. "'It'll be okay,' Susan said quietly. "'I know you'll do your best.' "'How can you say that? You don't even know what I'm going to do in there,' he countered. "'Heck, I don't even know what I'm going to do in there.' "'But I do know you, and I know you'll do your best for everyone.' Martin could only grumble. He had no idea what best was in this instance. He felt like he was marching into the final exam for Advanced Hermeneutics 499 and had never even bought the book. A small crowd stood around the front of Town Hall, Charles among them. Martin walked past a few, with stern faces, onto the front steps. They must know what I'm doing, Martin thought and they don't like it. And I thought the pancakes of Damocles were difficult. Ah, Simmons! Landers stood at the top of the stairs to the auditorium. Oh! Landers sounded surprised when he glanced at Susan walking up beside Martin. Um, I'm afraid the public isn't allowed into the hearing. Uh, sorry. Told you, Martin said out of the side of his mouth. Could I wait outside the doors here? Susan asked Landers. He looked conflicted. I'll stand over here in the corner. I won't be in anybody's way. Promise. Martin could see Landers' stern face melt. Perhaps her eyes worked on others, too. There was some comfort in that thought. Susan scrunched into the corner opposite the double doors, trying to occupy as small a footprint as possible. Her eyes flashed an I'll be right here message. Martin could only sigh. The oak desk looked ridiculously small up on the empty stage. Behind it sat Judge Calhoun in her black and burgundy robe. Officer Stuba and another man sat at one folding table in front of the stage. The town clerk sat at a small table near the stage with her pad of paper and pencil. The empty table was for Martin and the accused. The walk toward his table felt like the time that he was sent to the principal's office in third grade. Back then, he had prayed for aliens to abduct him, or an earthquake to occur so that he could flee the building. Nothing miraculous prevented him from reaching his destination then. Nothing happened now. He took his seat and nodded to Stuba. A few minutes later, Chief Berg brought in Trevor. 
arms cuffed behind his back, and stood him before the oak desk. Pat looked up from an open book in front of her, holding her place with a finger. She read alternately from a piece of paper and the book. Trevor Williams, you stand accused of four counts of murder, multiple counts of attempted murder, basically shooting at other residents of Cheshire during the gunfight, three counts of home invasion, and three counts of robbery. She glanced back at the book. Uh, with a deadly weapon. Um, said Stuba, I think we're supposed to state the date and the places, too. We all know when and where, snapped Pat. She was clearly not happy with being a judge. It's certainly no news to him, she pointed at Trevor. She glanced back at the book. Trevor Williams, how do you plead? Trevor looked over at Martin with wide eyes. From his worried expression, it didn't appear as if Trevor had been in court before. Martin came up to stand beside Trevor. Your Honor? Martin had seen enough courtroom movie scenes to know to say things like that. The accused pleads not guilty to all four counts of murder and all of the counts of attempted murder, one of the counts of home invasion, and one of the counts of robbery. He does plead guilty to two counts of home invasion. Trevor nodded with his head down at the last part. Pat frowned at her book as she flipped pages. But they don't say anything about pleading not guilty to some of the charges and guilty to others. I think the prosecution is supposed to go first, said Martin, again drawing from movies and television. But since we're all kind of figuring this stuff out as we go, could we talk about it together? Maybe we can narrow down the list of charges. What does the prosecution say? asked Pat. Uh, well, I suppose. Stubid looked taken off guard by the informality. Martin stood before Stubid's table. For one thing, we all know that Trevor and the three guys in that car didn't go into the Kendall house, but instead fled the Dexter house and ran into our roadblock. Right, Chief? Berg nodded. So, we know he couldn't have killed either of the Kendalls. Stuba squirmed but agreed. So, that leaves two murders he might have had an opportunity to commit. But I didn't kill nobody, said Trevor. You were there, insisted Stuba. You had plenty of opportunity and motive. But that doesn't mean I shot anybody, protested Trevor. It was Scooge, I tell you. He's the one that done shot him, not me. Apparently this Scooge is the shaved-headed man with the skull's necklace tattoo, Martin added. We found that guy dead in the Kendall's living room, said Berg. It's only his word on that, countered Stuba. The bald guy can't testify. Right, said Martin. Trevor, uh, I mean the accused, is the only living witness to the events. However, the accused also said he never fired any shots. How on earth can we ever verify that? asked Stuba. Martin looked at Berg. Chief, of the guns we found at the roadblock site, which one was taken off of the accused? Oh, that was done before I got there. I think it was Charles and Tyler that picked them up. Improper procedure, to be sure, but understandable. Bottom line is, I couldn't honestly tell you. Okay, said Martin. Can we call witnesses? he asked Pat. She patted the book. The book says you can. 
Can we get Charles? I saw him outside when I was coming in. Berg left the room. While the door was swinging shut, Martin could see Susan, still in her corner, trying to peek in as the door closed. Martin did have to concede. It was some comfort to know that there was one friendly face nearby. Charles entered the room a few moments later. If he had laser vision, Trevor would have been reduced to a cinder. Martin could see Charles's jaw muscles tightening. His glance at Martin had plenty of collateral anger to it. "'So, do I swear on a stack of Bibles, or what?' asked Charles with a growl. "'No,' said Pat. "'Hearings are not that formal. Just answer the questions honestly, to the extent that you can. Still, state your name and address.' "'Charles Hendrick, Stockman Hill Road, Cheshire.' "'Okay, defense,' said Pat. "'Uh, Charles,' Martin began slowly. Charles didn't look all that happy that Martin was acting as the gang member's defense. "'You frisked this guy, uh, the accused, when he got out of the car, right?' Martin stopped. "'Wait, that's leading the witness, isn't it?' "'I think so,' said Pat. "'Don't ask it that way.' Martin thought for a moment. "'Um,' Did you frisk the accused when he got out of the car? Yes. What did you find? A knife, a pistol in his back waistband, and a magazine in his front pocket. On this table, Officer Stuba has placed the guns we picked up from the roadblock scene. Martin pointed to a line of guns. We all took them home that day, but agreed to turn them in as evidence. Which gun did you take off of the accused? That one, the Keltec. Charles pointed to the small pistol. Thanks, Charles. That's how I remember it, too, but you were the one who actually pulled it out of his pants. Did you check the Caltech when you took it off of the accused? Of course I did, scoffed Charles. I cleared all weapons that we picked up. I dropped the magazine, it was full, and then there was a round in the chamber. The extra magazine I found in his pocket, that was full, too. Well, Your Honor, that means that the Caltech, the accused's weapon, had not been fired. Charles objected. That only proves those two magazines hadn't been used. He could have used up other magazines and dropped them. He could have shot these two empty and refilled them. Perhaps, said Martin. But I read in Chief Berg's report about the various crime scenes that no Keltec magazines or even any thirty-two caliber brass were found. Lots of nine-millimeter, forty, and a few forty-fives, and some odd brass, which I'll get to in a minute, but no thirty-twos. This would only suggest, not prove, mind you, that the Caltech wasn't fired, objected Stuba. It doesn't preclude this man from using one of the other guns. True, conceded Martin, but that's getting a little less straightforward, isn't it? He could have used up a different gun, and then gave it to another guy, but I want to get back to that odd brass. Can I call on Chief Berg as a witness, Your Honor? Uh, is that allowed? I don't know, Pat said. I don't see why not. It's still a hearing, not an official trial. Chief Berg stepped up beside the tables, beside Charles. Martin faced Berg, avoiding eye contact with Charles. Okay, Chief, yesterday I read in your reports that at the sight of all four bodies you found only these odd brass casings. No other casings, just the odd ones. One near each of the four bodies. Is that right? Yes. 
Could you bring up all the other guns that were picked up at the crime scenes? Berg excused himself and went to the basement. What are you trying to say? Charles asked Martin. Excuse me, interrupted Pat. I think witnesses only answer questions. They don't ask them. I'm not even sure if I was supposed to let you stay in here. Then I'll ask the questions, Your Honor, said Stuba. So what are you suggesting, Simmons? Uh, that all four people were killed by a different gang member, not the accused. This other gang member had an unusual pistol, which he used to commit all four murders. I wasn't there, none of us were there, but the only casings Chief found near the bodies were the odd ones. The accused said that the odd gun belonged to the gang member that he called Scooge. I'm suggesting that it's quite probable that it was this Scooge who shot those people. Since no thirty-two brass was found, I'm suggesting that it's also possible that the accused didn't shoot at anyone. We all know that he and the other three left the Dexter house before the rest of the gang entered the Kendall house and started shooting at the rest of you. Since his Caltech was still full at the roadblock, he wasn't shooting at us either. He may not be guilty of attempted murder. Charles stared at Martin. He thought he saw Charles's anger sails go slack, just a bit. But he wasn't sure. Berg returned with the cardboard box. He laid out the other guns and a Ziploc bag of various casings. It took both tables to display them all. Which of these is Scooge's gun? Martin asked Trevor. Trevor pointed to the 70s style long-barreled pistol with a full sight rail. Now, if I could ask you, Chief, to insert one of the odd brass casings you found near one of the bodies. The brass slid into the chamber with a snug fit. And, Martin continued, just to be clear, the brass you found near the bodies doesn't fit any of the other guns you found at the scene. No, we tried that, said Berg. Too big for a forty, too small for a forty-five. A friend of mine identified a gun identical to this one, taken from another gang member a while back, as an unusual forty-one caliber semi-auto. Where did you find this odd gun, Chief? Martin asked. In the waistband of the bald gang member. He had a Smith & Wesson forty caliber in his hand. Martin turned to Stuba. So, what I'm suggesting is that there isn't anything concrete to tie the accused directly to the murders. In fact, he couldn't have committed the Kendall murders since he was on his way to our roadblock at the time. By that same fact, he couldn't have been involved in the shootout at the Kendall house. Heck, I don't think there's any evidence that he even shot at us at the roadblock. We didn't find any thirty-two brass when we were cleaning up. What, are you saying we just drop all the charges for this man? protested Stuba. No, 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 it's not that he's done nothing. He acknowledged that he was part of the gang and that he invaded two of the three homes. He admitted to stealing their food. He was in the room during the murder of Timothy Dexter, and he didn't intervene. What if we set the charges at accessory to one murder and two counts of home invasion? Do you want to amend your charges, Mr. Stubby? asked Pat. She held out the sheet of paper she had been reading from. Stubby chewed on his lip for a long moment, then frowned at the table. Would you plead guilty to accessory and home invasion? Martin asked Trevor. 
Trevor hung his head. Yes, sir, he said quietly. Pat flipped the pages of her book. With a guilty plea, I can set jail terms, pending his trial. What do you plan to do, Mr. Prosecutor? From what I've heard today, it sounds like a conviction on the murders themselves would be iffy. Stuby massaged his temples. But it sounds like a conviction on accessory and home invasion would stick. Stuby took the paper from Pat's hand. He crossed out portions and wrote in the margins before handing it back. Pat cleared her throat. Ahem. Trevor Williams, you are accused of one count of accessory to murder and two counts of home invasion. How do you plead? Guilty, ma'am. A guilty plea is entered. Pat rapped Lander's gavel on the oak desk. The book says we're supposed to schedule a hearing, but I think we just had that, uh, didn't we? Everyone looked at each other and began to nod. Yes, yes, Your Honor, I, I think we did, said Stuba. I thought so, too, said Pat. Seeing as how there's no county jail to send him to, or even adequate facilities here, we need some other solution. So, Chief Berg, what confinement could you recommend? Well, Pat, uh, I mean, Your Honor, we have a possible arrangement where the prisoner could be confined at the town farm, in chains. He would be given as adequate food as the residents are receiving now, which is to say he won't be lavishly fed, and to earn the food that he eats and compensate for the people taken away from otherwise productive work, the prisoner will work eight to ten hours a day, six days a week. He will be given the Lord's Day off. There was some murmuring of agreement among those in the room. But we are asking for something unusual, too. Oh, said several people in unison. We believe there is a serious danger to the community if the prisoner were to escape and return to his gang in Manchester. I wouldn't do that, protested Trevor. I can't go back there. Perhaps, son, but we're not willing to take the risk. We are asking for this court's sanction and the understanding that if the prisoner either escapes or tries to escape confinement, that we will be authorized to shoot to kill. There was a stony silence in the room for a long moment. That's, um, Pat fished for words. That's a pretty extraordinary request, uh, Chief. I know times are kind of wacky, but permission to shoot prisoners? I ain't going to try and split, insisted Trevor. Friends and brothers, all them guys died. They're going to blame me because I didn't. They're going to make me dead. Nonetheless, said Berg, if your gang finds out what happened, they could come out here looking for revenge, and a whole lot of innocent people could get hurt. Chief, I don't disagree with your condition, said Martin, but it's possible his gang leaders will find out what happened here anyhow, even if he doesn't escape. He, the accused, I mean, was telling me why they came out here in the first place. Some guy he called the big man told his gang boss, the guy they call Bomber, that there was a lot of food out here. Yeah, that's right, added Trevor. Bomber said the big man told him. That's how they knows. I don't think we have such a big stash of food out here, said Martin. I mean, we kind of do now with Clyde's corn, but the gang attacked before we knew about that. But even before the corn, 
It could easily be that we do have more food than the inner city people do. Maybe this big man was just guessing. Maybe he knows. If he does know how things are out here, he may know about the failed attack. I still don't want to take any chances, said Berg. The gang could come out here looking for revenge. That's how they think. Man, I don't know what the big man knows. I don't know. I don't even know if he's real. I mean, Bama could have made him up. But I'm telling you, Bama ain't going to send any more of his boys out here, even if the big man told him. Why not? asked Berg. Revenge is a big deal with you gang types. Oh, man! Bama is all bad, and that's a fact. Ain't nobody want to mess with him. But I've been around him long enough to know what's deep inside. He's more chav than psycho. Big man told him about easy food, and it weren't easy. He got lots of his boys killed. Bama ain't likely to listen to the big man about coming out here again. Besides, Trevor continued, he ain't got the guys to lose. The kings have been pressuring the Azulis bad, you see. They've been taking streets and folding us. Bama can't spare more guys on no damn fool job in the boonies. He's got trouble next door. Nevertheless, repeated Berg, we cannot allow this man to escape. But what's to keep somebody from cutting my chain and saying, hey, he's escaping and shooting me in the back, huh? You said yourself there's people out here who wants to kill me. I don't think there's a cure for that, son. Your buddies have made a lot of people really angry. You're just going to have to make them like you. Like me? Trevor's voice got so high it squeaked. But I see your point, said Berg. It won't do to declare an open season on anybody. How about, Your Honor, if only the people guarding the prisoner are told about this shoot-to-kill order, don't make it public. Pat stared at her open book, as if hoping to see a statute covering the handling of dangerous prisoners when there were no jails or legal system. She gave the book a good long chance to reveal an answer. But the book remained silent. Okay, she said at last. Confinement at the town farm. Work eight hours a day to cover food and guards. Only guards will be permitted to shoot if the prisoner tries to escape. Anyone else harms him is accountable under the law. All of this is only until his trial at Superior Court, whenever that is. That's your judgment? asked Stuba. Pat rapped the gavel. Yes. Now, let's everyone go home. I have a headache. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks a ton and stuff, gushed Trevor. I knew you could do it. I just knew you'd talk fair. Martin wasn't sure he wanted to be congratulated. He had no peace inside. Trevor was still a member of a vicious criminal gang. Perhaps he deserved to be shot for previous crimes unknown. All Martin had was a reasonable doubt that he had committed any of the four murders in Cheshire. A reasonable doubt is not very comforting. It's still a doubt. He wanted certainty, but certainty was like heat-shimmer mirages on the highway, always out of reach. Berg left with Trevor. Stuba and the other man picked up all of the guns and carried the boxes downstairs. Landers gave Martin a thumbs-up and patted him on the arm as he turned to go. He said he would relay the news to the crowd on the front steps. Pat and the town clerk shuffled out, Pat's robe swishing loudly as she walked. Charles, looking lost, turned slowly and drifted out of the doors. Martin followed. "'Is it all over?' Susan asked. Martin nodded. 
He leaned against the banister, looking out of the tall windows of the stairwell. I'm not ready to go home just yet. He sat on a top stair, head in his hands. After all of the tension, concentration, and mental energy, he felt exhausted. His stomach twisted. Had he just aided justice or subverted it? Would the townspeople see things the way Landers said, a validation of the rule of law? Or would they see Martin as helping a criminal skirt what he deserved? Doubt swirled around in his head like black flies. His father used to tell him not to overthink things. Be bold, he used to say. Go with your gut. On the other hand, his father also used to say, sometimes your gut is wrong. Usually, after he had gotten the family lost on some backroad shortcut that he was positive led to the highway. When Martin made a foolish, impulsive decision, his father used to say, You gotta think, Martin. A man who never questions himself never knows when he's wrong. It seems there's a wise old saying for both sides of any problem. Wise old sayings aren't much help. I'm no lawyer, he said. I still don't know if I did the right thing. I think you did. I could hear through the door, Susan said. She sat on a top step, too, near the other banister. It sounded like the right thing to me. Martin wasn't particularly comforted. You might not be a totally unbiased observer. True, but it's not just that, she began. I think you were right. About what? That that gang guy didn't commit those murders. You sound awfully sure, Martin said without looking up. Well, I mean, who knows everything for sure, right? Her tone was perky, as if trying to cheer him up. It's that people skills thing, remember? I mean, when I saw him coming up the stairs, I was freaking out inside. The clothes, the tattoos, the pointy facial hair. I've seen lots of that downtown. It's always scary. But I figure that's what he was trying for, right? Scary? But listening through the door, I couldn't see him anymore. All I could do was hear him and it really struck me that his voice didn't match his look. Something in his tone, or, or maybe just the way he answered, it sounded sincere. I don't think he killed anybody. More than that, I don't think he even fired a shot at anybody. Martin couldn't suppress a weary chuckle. <laughs> Sounds like I've convinced you, too. You mean all that gun talk about calibers and brass and stuff? No, you kind of lost me on all that. I was talking about his voice. So, however you did it, I think you did the right thing, getting them to agree to lesser charges. Well, thanks. Martin stood up. I think I'm ready to go home now. Lander stood near the front doors of town hall. How did the uh, crowd take the news? Martin asked. Ah, kind of a mix. Most of them took it okay. I explained how the evidence suggested that the bald guy was the actual killer and that he was shot dead already, as were all the rest of them. Charles came out and agreed that the prisoner didn't kill his aunt. That swayed the crowd even more than I did. Oh, sure, there were a few grumblers. They were disappointed that he wasn't going to get shot today. But I kind of get the impression they just wanted to see somebody shot. Didn't really matter who or why. Most of them seemed satisfied that he pled guilty to something and would have to work for his bread and water. As you can see, uh, they've all gone home. I see Clyde and his corn truck have gone home, too. Martin peered out of the front door windows. Say, did you happen to see that lady that was trying to sell those metal knickknacks at the trade meetings? 
She was trying to sell stuff like copper bears, windmills made of wire, you know, stuff like that. Landers stroked his beard. Yeah, knick-knack lady? He was drawn a blank. She had a table in the back corner, left side, remember? Usually all by herself, since, uh, well, nobody needs metal knick-knack nowadays. Oh, wait, wait, that, that sad-looking gal. Uh, sk um, ski sweater, dark hair? Yeah, yeah, that, that's her. Did you see her today? I thought maybe she'd come to buy some corn. Hmm, I think I did see her earlier. She didn't leave with corn, like the others. She did leave in a big hurry. Can't see any reason to run places these days, said Landers. Just makes you hungry. Any idea where she lives? Landers looked at Martin with a puzzled expression. Uh, not really. I've seen her around before all of this. Last name is uh, Bain or something like that. Sorry, no idea where she lives. Why are you looking for her, if you don't mind my asking? Oh, I've got this gasifier project going with Charles, and the tools that made the knickknacks could be just what we need to make a filter that works. I want to find out if she has those tools or what. So if you see her again, let her know that I was looking for her. Oh, sure, okay. Yeah, well, I'll catch you later. Landers held the door open for them. There were no angry mobs on the front walk, no torches, no pitchforks. There were only a few people on the front steps of the church across the street and an older couple making their way down the road. Martin smiled in relief. Perhaps he had overthought the perils, or perhaps Lander was right about people wanting to see the law still at work. Martin was actually enjoying the walk home and a chance to decompress from the stress of the hearing. With the sun and little wind, it was actually a mild day. The silence was absorbing. No traffic noise, no whir or hum, just cardinals in the distance making their chip-chip call. Even the air seemed clean and refreshing. His mind began to wander on to how Filter H might have to be assembled to be practical. Um, Susan said hesitantly. Martin's heart sank. Something inside him knew what that um meant. Susan must have seen his posture sag. She rushed in an alternate question. I, I was just going to ask you why you were looking for that Bane person. Uh, that's all. It's just like I told Landers. She might have a couple of tools we could use. She might not. I want to find out. Oh. But that's not what you were going to say, is it? Martin said. That um wasn't about the lady and her metal tools. I hate to say it, but I think I'm developing some people skills, too. At least when it comes to reading your ums. Oh, really? Uh, actually, um, whoops, Ooh, I said it again. Ah, she growled at herself in frustration. Out of the corner of his eye, he could see that she was twirling her hair around her finger, nervously. He decided to give her time to compose her words. He could guess what topic had her so flustered. Rushing things never made them better. There was another reason I wanted to come along to the hearing. I figured there would be the walk home, and uh, it would be a good time to... Ah, she heaved a heavy sigh. I didn't mean for this to happen. Feeling, you know. I know you don't want me to use the word out loud, and I, and I understand why. 
I never imagined that I would feel like I did. I mean, I do. He glimpsed her, shaking her fists in frustration. She was trying to pick her words carefully, but it was still not going the way she thought it would. She took a deep breath and let it out slowly. I kind of thought you might feel the same way, sort of. I mean, it seemed like it, but you never, well, not that you should. No, no, I'm not saying that. Oh, man, this isn't going well at all. You'll be okay, he comforted. Nothing seems to be easy anymore. No, you got that right, she said. After another big sigh and a pause, she continued at double speed. Then, when you were being angry with Eric and all, I realized that you did feel the same way, too, and I have to say that it was the most amazing feeling I've ever felt in my whole life because no one has ever felt that way for me before, and I could never thank you enough if I lived a hundred years for just that one single moment of knowing that somebody like you felt— Martin raised a finger of objection. But, it's like I said, feelings can't be the only star we steer by. I know, I remember, and I get that. Nothing is simple any more, and the last thing I want to do is to cause you any trouble. I really don't. I've watched how you've been dealing with, well, you know, my feelings, your feelings. It's like we're in some sort of denial mode, like it never happened. Martin liked his denial mode. It was so much easier. In the high-stress times they lived in now, emotion was a booby-trapped package best left alone. I just wanted you to know that I'm trying your denial thing, too. I don't know how well I'll do. Back in college, my friends told me I should never play poker because I couldn't do the poker face thing at all. Despite that, I decided to start having a poker face this morning. The reason I'm telling you all of this is that I just wanted you to know that if I seem kind of cool and standoffish or businesslike, it's because I'm working on my poker face not because my feelings have changed. I don't think that'll happen, she said quietly to herself. That's the end of Chapter 4. If you like what you're listening to, check out my Buy Me a Coffee site, or if you prefer Patreon, check out my Patreon site. Links are in the show notes. Thanks.